A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Okay, so I'm going to give you the definition of emolument. This is not emulsion. It's not like a mayonnaise or a salad dressing. Emolument. Emolument. The returns arising from office or employment, usually in the form of compensation or perquisites. Perquisites? Perquisites. Yeah, perquisites. Perks. 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 Perquisites. That's where the so word perk emoluments. Comes. That's where perk comes from. Not emollients. Not mm-hmm. like hand cream. The archaic meaning advantage. So emolument. What, what is the emoluments clause? Ben Wittes, you're a legal expert. What's the emoluments clause? Uh, article... One, cl- section nine, clause eight, no person holding any office of profit or trust uh, shall without consent of the Congress accept any present emolument, office or title of any kind, whatever, from any king, prince, or foreign state. Mm, sounds pretty clear to me. Interesting, interesting. We love all the articles. One, two, nine. Twelve. Twelve. Two Corinthians. That's in two Corinthians, right? <laughs> yeah. Corinthians two, the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Emoluments Edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast. My emoluments are sitting right here in front of me. My good friends, Tamara Coppin, Wittes, Ben Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Can I pour you an emolument? Oh, yeah. Why didn't you pour me an emolument earlier? Uh, because I was busy looking up, looking up the, the emolument clause. clause for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I could have some like a peaty emolument with like a yeah. little bit of, you know, So emolument's just going to be like treat now. <laughs> yeah. Would either of per- you two like an emolument? Per- perquisites. <laughs> I'll have a perquisite, thank you. Would you like a perquisite? <laughs> I think I'm going to need one to get through the next four years. I want to know, like, I mean, like, seriously, is there like a run on Xanax at <laughs> like every pharmacy in the greater Washington There is area? like a spike in calls to suicide hotlines. So. Is there really? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's not funny. Wow. Uh, pass Shane the war on the rocks Very poor tumbler. <laughs> Thank you very much. Who needs Tumblr when you have a Tumblr? Shout out to our friends at War on the Rocks. Cheers. Cheers. Which is an emolument that you accepted by virtue of your office from a foreign state, which is War on the Rocks. Uh, I want to point out that I do not hold an office of trust under the Constitution. That's for sure. Uh, and uh, and War on the Rocks is a patriotic American <laughs> entity, not a foreign king, prince, or state. Just a competing blog. Yeah. Not even a potentate. This week on the podcast, Donald Trump announces his picks for some key national security positions. Meanwhile, Trump is grappling with multiple conflicts of interest between his businesses and his coming presidential administration. And the knives are out for NSA Director Admiral Mike Rogers. What is going on over at Fort Meade? We're going to talk about that, plus a special Thanksgiving object lesson. Um, we're going to get to emoluments, but first, before we do that, uh, the Trump administration, well, the, the, what do you call it? The Trump transition? The Trump yes. administration elect? 
The Trump transition. The team. Trump transition team, right? Because it's, it's it's actually its own separate nonprofit, right? Yeah. The Piotis. The Piotis. The Piotis. It is, uh, I believe, an arm of the uh, General Accounting so Office. Is it? Or the Gen? Yeah. Or the General GSA. GSA. Whatever it is. Whatever it is. That's that. You know that, that thing. That thing doing its thing at the golf course. Uh, <clears throat> uh, Trump announced several uh, key positions last week. Mike Flynn, of course, for National Security Advisor. Uh, Mike Pompeo for CIA director. Uh, General Mattis is in leading contention, I think it's safe to say, as SecDef. Uh, and possibly Mitt Romney for Secretary of State. Uh, and then, of course, possibly, possibly not. Possibly not. Who knows? Uh, and also Jeff Sessions to be Attorney General. Um, I'm just going to throw it out there. What do you guys make of, I mean, collectively and separately, I mean, individually, of some of these uh, appointments. I will say that it's, I wasn't expecting Mike Pompeo for CIA. Uh, Flynn seemed like he was going to get something big, probably got national security advisor because he might have had some problems with confirmation hearings. Uh, but what are you guys sort of making of these first slates, uh, this first slate of, uh, of picks? So, like, um, this is sort of the the weird area in which you kind of have to rely on the judgment of other people as well. Um, so, uh, you know, there are obviously lots of sort of charges against Pompeo as, um, you know, supporting torture, right? There's sort of there's, there's the typical um, uh, the kinds of charges against him that that are expected sort of in opposition to almost any kind of cabinet position. Um, I was comforted to hear people like Mike Hayden say that he thought it was a responsible choice. Um, I, I know he has a reputation, Pompeo has a reputation of being smart, um, which is rarer in Congress than people might actually uh, uh, be aware of. Um, and so uh, I would put him sort of, um, well, I know that uh, he's not comforting to sort of the civil libertarians. Um, uh, he's comforting to me um, in the sense of he has all of the markers, um, both of being a, a sane and rational person um, and also of having um, uh, the trust of people who've held the office before um, and have um, uh, have clearly treated with a great deal of sort of um, respect. Uh, the Mattis one is uh, is a little bit strange. Um, so of course there is um, a prohibition on on uh, appointing a Secretary of uh, Defense who has served in the military within the past seven years. Um, although Congress can extend a waiver, um, they would need to extend it in this case. Uh, Mattis only retired three years ago. Um, so there's sort of the question of him as a person and him as a selection. Um, he's beloved by the Marine Corps, um, uh, is highly respected um, by people who, who sort of have worked with him. Um, and so I think most people uh, uh, are reassured at the notion uh, of his selection. Uh, but this separate question of um, we have a civilian controlled military for a reason, um, that Distance between uh, uh, you know, military service and, and coming back in as a civilian sec def, um, uh is important. Um, do we want to start blurring the lines here? Um, and actually, whenever you hear Donald Trump uh, talking about it, um, he says things like, it's time for military control of, of the Pentagon, right? We want to put a, a military guy back in there. Um, it's not clear whether or not he understands uh, the significance of a civilian controlled military. Um, and so, 
uh, I think it's sort of it's it's a separate question about whether or not we want to go down this road of um, of starting to have people who are very close in military service um, serving as the Secretary of Defense. So I I think those are all good points, and I hope we will discuss the civil mi- military relations piece also when we talk about Admiral Rogers. Um, but I think. The thing that has struck me, I guess there are a couple of things that have struck me about this past week's developments on uh, the personnel front for the Trump transition team. The first week, you know, we saw these very disturbing rewards to loyalists, right? Rince Priebus. Uh, That's Reince to you. Sorry, Reince like, Priebus. Reince like pints. Is yes. that like Reince hold like or pints something? Pints ketchup. <laughs> okay, thank yeah. you. Steve Bannon. Um, you know, and, and I think that this week we're seeing a little bit more attention paid to clearing the credibility bar of expertise in these key national security portfolios. So some might say that's a comforting development. I would say it's a low bar. Um, but I also think it's really interesting that the people that we see flowing in and out of Trump Tower for these meetings are Governors like Nikki Haley and Rick Perry, um, you know, retired military or in Admiral Rogers case, current military. Uh, and it says something about the lack of uh, political depth of the Trump team. Right. So if they're looking for people that they think uh, are loyal friends, uh, people who can be good supporters of a President Trump. They can't go to that many people in the existing uh, national security universe because the vast majority of those people, as we discussed throughout the campaign, uh, were against him. And so it, it's reaching beyond normal categories. And maybe that's where we get to, you know, the the question of whether how we feel about having someone as recently retired as Jim Mattis step in as SecDef. So I, I just want to say that, like, uh, I think the country... Uh, if you can consider the problems facing the country in the face of uh, uh, the uh, rise of this president, the idea that a distinguished general uh, might be secretary of defense is so far down the list relative to uh, the fact, the possibility of a Trump loyalist, for example, being secretary of defense or an incompetent nut job uh, as Secretary of Defense. Uh, and I think, you know, I, acknowledging the risk that that is exactly the way you normalize a deviation from the norm, uh, I have to say I was deeply relieved when I heard Jim Mattis's name floated and that he had visited Trump and that Trump was impressed by him. Uh, and I think I would be uh, much less anxious about terrible things happening at the Department of Defense if Jim Mattis were Secretary of Defense than if a lot of other people were Secretary of Defense. And on a positive note, I would be much uh, more uh, confident that some good forward strategic thinking were happening than I would be uh, about anybody involved in the upper echelons of the Trump administration absent Jim Mattis. So while I I agree that this is not a precedent that you would want uh, in an ideal world, 
I think under the circumstances, we should all regard it as a very good thing if it comes to pass and a very regrettable thing if it doesn't. And moreover, I, I think the protection against the normalization of it lies in A, the waiver requirement, which, you know, requires an affirmative step by Congress. And secondly, more generally, by the confirmation process. So as a general matter, yes, we should be suspicious of recent generals becoming Secretary of Defense. Uh, you know, occasionally they've become president, too. And so it's not a thing wholly without Ulysses S. Grant or, or Dwight Eisenhower kind of uh, precedents. And it's something that the Republic has managed to survive. And I think this is a... Uh, in the broad scheme of things, one of the best pieces of news, if it were to come to pass, that the Trump administration uh, so far has yielded. So I, I think um, all of those are very good points, and I can't disagree with any of them. But I do think it's we had an interesting glimmer of insight into why Donald Trump might value Jim Mattis as Secretary of Defense in a comment he apparently made in his meeting with The New York Times today, where Trump noted that when he met with Mattis, he was surprised to learn that Mattis didn't support waterboarding because he really thought he would. Mm-hmm. And, and interesting question, did he mention that in the context of that being an educational moment for him? Or did he mention that as a reason why maybe Mad Dog Jim Mattis, a Marine legend, is actually not up to the job of SECDAF in the Trump administration? <laughs> well, I, I guess we'll have to wait and see if he gets the appointment. What did you uh, <clears throat> Well, to many of the points that have been raised, that there's there, there are some appointments here that have given people some, you know, relief. You know, these are <clears throat> competent people, many of them, or at least not perhaps some of the, the incompetence that people thought might be appointed. But then there's the question of the deputies and the deputy assistants and the assistant secretaries and the people who really do the day-to-day work of running a government, of running agencies, of conducting interagency discussions, shaping policy. Do you guys think that is there still a problem in attracting that talent? And to what degree does having you know, reasonable people, even if they might not be, you know, some people's first choices at the top of those agencies, uh, ameliorate those concerns and maybe encourage some people to give this a shot and actually come in and work for a Trump administration, people who might not have previously entertained that idea. Right. So I think um, there's been a lot of people who are waiting to sort of see the appointment of principals. And often um, once those principals are in place, they then start to staff sort of themselves. Right. Um, Mattis will have people who he's worked with, who he has relationships with. Um, you know, there still might be one or two stray sort of campaign people, political people inserted uh, you know, maybe not against his will, but but wouldn't have been his uh, necessarily his selection. Um, uh, so I think actually um, we can already see the significance of the principles um, because we aren't uh, from that DOD uh, sort of uh, community. Um, uh, we are hearing more and more people, uh, you know, sort of at that mid level that uh, appear to at least be considering the possibility or or um, perhaps waiting to see if Mattis actually takes uh, office. Um, uh, in the other category, we have the announcement of Jeff Sessions as uh, attorney general, um, which from as from what I can tell has caused an absolute 
exodus in terms of uh, reasonable people who uh, might have been expected to serve at the Justice Department. Um, Wait, I, so you see people leaving the department or people that might have served now are telling you, no way am I going to serve under Jeff Sessions? I think both. I think a significant number of people will leave uh, the Justice Department um, either uh, either now um, or because uh, of the probable policies that Sessions will put in place. Um, and I also think that uh, there are many people who would have been willing to serve under, um, you know, plausible, uh, reasonable names that had been circulated, um, uh, even even sort of some of the more outlandish sort of uh, people, right? Even Chris Christie, I think that there are some people who would have uh, served underneath him. People I'm, who were who were with him at the Ben sort of shaking his head, but even people who were um, uh, who, who worked with him at the U.S. Attorney's Office. I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm being overly optimistic. Yeah. So I think you're being. Uh, uh, first of all, I actually know of nobody in my world of communication who uh, was interested in taking a Justice Department job at the political level in a Trump administration. Now, given what I've written on the subject, it may be that those people just aren't contacting mm. me. But, um, but I, I think the, 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 I agree with you, Susan, that the, uh, problem of staffing the Justice Department is worse under Sessions than under a, uh, more mainstream nominee. But I don't think uh, that Chris Christie or Rudy Giuliani was that more mainstream nominee. And I think the, uh, the, the basic problem that Trump has with the justice, with staffing the Justice Department is that a very large numbers of things that he's said he wants to do are frankly illegal or unconstitutional. And getting uh, distinguished, serious lawyers to sign up to implement and represent those policies is going to be very hard. And, uh, and I think that's true under Jeff Sessions, and I think it's true under Chris Christie, and I think it's true under Rudy Giuliani. I just think staffing a Trump Justice Department with competent people is going to be very, very difficult. So I think there's probably a little more space in that sense when you're looking at state or defense or CIA or some of the other parts of the national security uh, establishment. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, just as a process point and uh, an experienced uh, senior person agreeing to take on a, a cabinet nomination would likely seek to negotiate with the president-elect their ability to select their own people in their own Like department. it's going to be a condition of taking yeah, the job. Yeah, it would be a condition of taking the job <clears throat> or at least a desideratum that you might, you know, that you might be willing to drop or negotiate around, but certainly a demand. And so I think that um, potential lower-level appointees will, number one, say, did this person have the smarts to make that demand of the president-elect so that they can exercise their own autonomy over their agency. And if they didn't, then that's that's a bit of a red flag, I think, for potential lower-level appointees. Um, and then, of course, there's, you know, there's the broader policy question that Ben brings up with respect to the Justice Department, which is, to what extent is it clear already what the president-elect's policy priorities are for that agency? And are those policy priorities that potential working-level appointees can live with? Um, so, you know, there's confidence in the person in charge, but how, 
how clearly have the parameters been set by the guy who's sitting in the Oval Office? I also yeah. think one one other one other point uh, just on your point that the bench is thin, Shane. Uh, look, the evidence that the bench is thin uh, look no further than Pompeo. Uh, Pompeo, I agree with everything Susan said about his being, in some sense, a reassuring choice. Um, on the other hand, this is far from like a particularly bright star in the uh, Republican or conservative uh, uh, intelligence establishment. Especially a- since they threw away a guy that they had, Cong- former Congressman Mike Rogers. Uh, right. No military, no intelligence experience. Right. And he's got, right. look, and, you know, Panetta had no intelligence experience either. Well, right, and, well uh, Pompeo has military experience. Oh, okay. Yeah. In fact, uh, Pretty quite a bit. Significant yeah. military experience. But he has no, inter- but look, Panetta had no intelligence experience either and served with enormous distinction. Uh, so I don't, but, 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 but the, the broad point is if you think about the universe of Republican and conservative national security people qualified to uh, run the CIA, uh, Pompeo wouldn't show up in the first, in the top 30 or 40. Um, and uh, that's not to say he won't do a good job, but, but it is a reflection of a thin bench that, you know, that you're talking about him and not about, oh, say, Mike Chertoff. Right. 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 No, I think that's definitely true. I mean, one thing is I do think that um, sort of in our national security world, um, people should uh, not underestimate the significance of the attorney general on national security policy. Um, uh, there's a tendency to sort of overestimate the selection of the CIA director, the DOD, uh, SECDEF. You know, that's um, because uh, it's just it's more obvious from the title. Um, uh, the attorney general has extremely significant uh, oversight control. You know, those AG guidelines set um, uh, set and implement um, uh, very, very substantive controls over intelligence activities. And so um, while I know most of sort of the focus on sessions right now is um, uh, in regards to his civil rights and voting rights records, that's sort of where the, the emphasis on, on the problematic nature of his nomination is. Um, I do hope that the confirmation process also uh, takes a serious look at uh, the powers of the attorney general in the national security space um, and whether or not his record and temperament uh, indicates that he is prepared to discharge that function responsibly. All right. So let's move on from the question of positions to the question of um, conflicts of interest. Uh trying to sort of capture all of the universe of these because they're <clears throat> fairly significant, but broadly speaking... Hey, we um, all have conflicts of interest. We all have conflicts of interest. And, uh, you know, it's like, you know, we all have interests. Yeah. We, all have, we all like conflict. Um, but not all of us are about to become president and uh, running a global empire of results and golf courses and hotels, including in countries where the uh, sovereign government might not only uh, have a lot to say over permits and licenses and these kinds of things, but might even be an investor in your property <laughs> or at least sending people your way for business. Um, so obviously this has become a, a really huge uh, issue. Uh, and it's not at all clear to me anyway that the 
president-elect thinks this is at all a problem. He has said that he's going to have his kids run his business, um, but so far no indication that he would put anything in a blind trust, which is the usual way of doing things. Um, I don't think the idea that his kids, including his daughter, who has sat in on at least two meetings or phone calls with foreign leaders running the business, exactly puts a firewall between the president and his his. It's his a firewall, but it's made of birch. Yes, it's a yeah. wall that is on fire, <laughs> just to be clear. Um, uh, it, it, it's just where we talked about the emoluments clause at the top of the, uh, of the show. It, it is, as far as we know, a violation of the Constitution for the president to be receiving money, uh, whether it's directly, I presume, or via the corporation to which he is the private owner, uh, from foreign governments. And uh, it may not be a problem, I guess, if it's a foreign company investing in your hotel, but if it's a state-owned enterprise or if it's a state sovereign wealth fund, look, this is just, it's a minefield of conflicts, let's just put it that way, including the fact that uh, there have been at least at least one instance now that we know of from reporting where Trump was apparently talking to uh, the president of Argentina uh, in the course of talking about issues of state, said, I'd really appreciate it if you could do something to speed up the permits for the building that I'm trying well, to Although and, the and president also, of Argentina denies. Right. This is right. Right. But, the Argentinian but, press. But yeah. there was also the issue of whether he raised... Uh, wind farms near his golf courses in the UK in his conversation there. And again, in his uh, discussion with the New York Times today, he said, I might have brought that up. He said he might have brought it up. He also said there's no conflict of interest here. The president, his words, cannot have a conflict of interest, which sounds uh, perhaps even like the Oliver Stone version of Nixon. But um, <laughs> <laughs> not just Nixon. The, the stone, stone version of so, so, Susan, I know you've been thinking a lot about this, but so give yeah, us your so, thoughts and kind of help us walk through this. So, look, it's um, I think it's like it's um, it's like a metaphor, emblematic. That like I don't even know which one to talk about because there are so many. Like it is, it's legitimately hard to focus in on the issues here. Um, uh, sort of taking the last and most significant, um, your your last point, and which I think is the most significant. Um, so at the moment, um, Trump is a private citizen. He's a private citizen until he takes the oath of office. So right now, um, uh, while he is um, certainly engaging in conduct, which I, I I would argue would be an impeachable offense if he was president, um, you can't uh, a private citizen can't commit an impeachable offense. I don't think, although I'm not sure we've ever been put in that position. Um, uh, so, but, but clearly Trump is giving um, uh, every indication that he does not plan to, um, to change his behavior. Um, and so, uh, you know, look, I, I think that there is a, a real and emerging and at this point probable likelihood that on the day he takes office, he will um, begin to violate the, the, his constitutional obligation. Um, in terms of sort of the Turkish story, or um, I'm sorry, the Argentina story, I'm um, actually think the way, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. We'll get to Turkey later. Um, uh, in terms of the Argentina story, I actually think the way that this story uh, came out and was reported um, is highly significant. It's like it's a it's a drill. Let's let's figure this out. Sort of how the media is going to report this stuff, and that's um, that the uh, original story that came out of Argent uh, the Argentinian media um, was that Trump had asked for a permit during the call. Um, that was uh, disavowed, or right? The the president of Argentina said that didn't happen, and um, and sort of uh, you know the, the press after kind of getting um, fairly apoplectic in the two hours between the initial report and the denial, um, then kind of said, oh okay, like never mind. Um, 
since that period, um, a new sort of uh, set of facts has, have emerged. And that's that, no, Trump didn't ask for permits on the call. Um, by the way, uh, he's longtime friends with this individual and, and probably wouldn't have to. Um, but that actually what occurred is that the president of Argentina had um, had basically endorsed Hillary Clinton, uh, despite knowing Donald Trump. Um, and then uh, immediately following the election, um, had attempted sort of frantically to try and uh, establish communication with the new president-elect um, through his son, um, Eric Trump, who represents the company in uh, in Argentina. Um, Eric Trump, who had said, oh, you know, it'll be in due time. The president, you know, he'll get around to it. He'll get around to it and sort of held them off. Um, uh, once the phone call took place, um, the next day, uh, the Trump Tower, which is uh, being constructed in Buenos Aires, um, uh, where there were uh, very, very significant questions about how exactly he was going to obtain these permits. Um, uh, you know, a lot of people were just highly skeptical that this could be done. Um, the next day, the construction project uh, restarted um, uh, with all confidence that uh, that things were going to move ahead. Um that is uh, whether or not there was the the uh, sort of he asked for a permit on a call. Uh, this is really, really clear corruption, right? This is using the fact of your office. Um, re recall that, the, the, you know, uh, what you are trading here is the trust of the American people and the power they have invested, they have vested in you um, for personal enrichment. Um, and, and I think that this is a period in which um, any other president, uh, we would absolutely demand that he create a legitimate blind trust. A blind trust is not transferring your assets to somebody else. It is liquidating your assets and having them invested in a way in which you yourself are not aware of. Um, so even if Trump was was um, just transferring his uh, companies to his children, that's already a problem. Uh, the fact that he is continuing to participate in in uh, in business, uh, having his daughter in these official meetings, meeting with Indian business partners, uh, this stuff is just, it's absolute red flags um, and, and it should be unacceptable. Uh, and yet here we are. Okay, so what's, I guess two questions. One is, all right, here we are, um, and this is a period when he's not yet formally in office, so he could fudge uh, and say, well, I'm not bound by anything yet, or there are lots of excuses he could make, but what, it, what we do have clearly is, as you said, red flags, indicators of intent that are very, very troubling. So given that, given that that's where we are, what's the enforcement mechanism here for the expectations that you say we would have of any other president? What's, what is the manner in which leverage can be exerted to get him to, to um, first of all, be more transparent about his conflicts and second of all, work to m minimize or mitigate them? So uh, I don't know, maybe Ben has more sort of specific thoughts on, on the legal mechanisms, um, you know, but broadly speaking, um, ethics laws do not apply to the president. Um, that's sort of a basic that seems separation to be the one of thing power. he knows about the subject. Right. Not and now, of course, because of separation of powers, um, we don't uh, those ethics laws don't apply because of the primary constraint in this area on the president is supposed to be a sense of legitimacy and decency and political accountability. Now, Trump tweeted out, I think, yesterday 
yesterday. Um, uh, everybody knew that I had business uh, interests all over the world during the campaign. Crooked media just making it an issue now. Um, it, Trump appears to be putting forth the argument that um, part of the mandate by on which he was elected includes the ability to continue to do this kind of business. Um, uh, if he's not going to self uh, have any kind of um, uh, self-control or restrain himself, uh, I have to imagine there must be legal mechanisms up to or or short of impeachment. Well, so first of all, I think there. Uh, first of all, it, it it's not clear that the that the principal mechanisms available are uh, legal rather than political. So. Uh, there's an interesting set of questions as to which, if any, of these laws actually applies to the president. We've never had to confront those questions before because we haven't had presidents who proudly flouted them. Um, it is also a serious question, of course, whether uh, – and I think the answer is probably no – whether any of this applies except in appearance to the president-elect. And so the the – the argument that all of this is sort of hypothetical until January 20th is probably actually legally right. Um, and so then the question, I think, really becomes how much does Congress care? If Congress cares, they can stop this in its tracks and they can stop it by refusing to confirm his nominees. They can stop it by refusing to appropriate monies that he wants. And ultimately, they have the power to impeach him. Um, if they don't care enough to use the levers that they have, he will get away with this. Um, and, you know, is there I, any is it conceivable that any private citizen would have standing to sue? So I think there are circumstances in which it might be conceivable if somebody can show that they were injured as a result of his having done something uh, in like if I were bidding on a competing bid to get some contract that a foreign government was granted. So, you know, the question of what would be the basis of your standing is – but I don't think it's unthinkable that the thing could end up in litigation. I also don't think it's unthinkable, uh, frankly, that that – look, the Emoluments Clause is fundamentally a national security clause. It's about preventing foreign governments from bribing the president. Um, and from conferring, if you actually look at its text, it's about, it's about the conference of titles of nobility in foreign countries. And so the King of England comes to the president and says, I'll make you the Duke of X and such if you'll turn over your country to me. And that's actually not that different from the president of Argentina saying, I'll make your permitting problems go away. And, um, if, you know, if you, um, you know, do X, Y, and Z. And so I think the, the, the important initial thing is understanding this in the language of outrage, understanding this in the, in the language of undue foreign control over the conduct of the U.S. government. Uh, and I think once you understand it that way, and it may be that as long as there is unified Republican control over uh, uh, and unified Trumpist control of the Republican Party and unified contr uh, Republican control over the powers of uh, organs of government, that the 
the the limitation on what will happen here is merely the creation of a record. But I do think there will come a point, if Trump is not very careful about the way he does this, in which in which the amalgamation of this the amalgamation of the emoluments becomes unacceptable and becomes very very uh uh troubling to people um and so i don't know quite what the enforcement mechanism is but i, I you know of course eventually the bribery laws do apply to the president the other thing is that his family may be more vulnerable here than he is so um yeah. uh one of the things of, of the many many incredibly bizarre things about him wanting to get his um uh children's security clearances and and wanting Jared Kushner to come to the to the um uh, to the white house with them is um even though there is some argument that these rules do not apply to the president himself, they unequivocally apply to the president's staff. Um, so one of the conditions of having a security clearance is undergoing an extremely detailed financial disclosure form. They call it the financial colonoscopy for a reason. Um, and that includes um, uh, very uh, specific disclosures of all of the stocks you hold, uh, uh, you know, inf- money coming in, money coming out. Um, one of the reasons for that, um, there are many, um, is to ensure that nobody, uh, uh, for example, if I hold stock in a British te- uh, or a Brazilian telecom um, uh, and uh, in the course of performing my function at, at NSA had information about uh, you know, business dealings, mergers, right? There, There is, you know, corporate information that people might have uh, uh, access to. Um, you know, I'm making this up, obviously. Um, that that uh, I think there are there are insider trading issues, right? There, there's all kinds of, of really serious issues. And so I think that um, if we end up seeing uh, Kushner or Ivanka or other people getting access to information without liquidating that blind trust, holding those kinds of, of assets, let alone actually if there's any kind of indication that they are um, uh you know, conducting business based on sort of inside information, uh, then I do think we have, I, then I do think sort of the range of tools um, regarding, you know, the securities enforcement, criminal sanctions, all kinds of stuff. Um, there's a much broader world for those people. I just want to say there is no good argument that the emoluments clause does not apply to the president. Yeah. I, I know there are certain, there are certain executive power <clears throat> uh, enthusiasts who are trying to advance that argument. It is actually a very weak argument. Uh, we'll talk about this more in, uh, in, in days and weeks to come, no one, doubt. One suspects we will have cause. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and let's the table for the moment, too, that the president's staff pointing out, <clears throat> Susan, you pointed out that these things do apply to them. Uh, it's not clear that the incoming national security advisor, Mike Flynn, has severed his business relationship with the government of Turkey either. So, gobble, gobble. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> the knives are out for Mike Rogers at NSA. Mike Rogers who has been director of the agency and commander of Cyber Command about two years now, yeah? Uh, The Washington Post story over the weekend took a lot of people by surprise and seemed to uh, unearth this pretty intense animosity that Ash Carter and, I guess, uh, to some extent, D&I Jim Clapper have towards Rogers and was sort of the... I don't know, the, the, the press equivalent of a public execution or a <laughs> flogging. Uh, it, it, the, the gist of it being that the uh, Obama administration, uh, the White House was urged by these senior leaders to um, replace Rogers, to take him out of his job. It's not entirely clear what 
all of the grievances and gripes are, but we kind of are getting a sense of some of them. We'll unpack those a bit. But add to this the backdrop of uh, Mike Rogers going up last week and meeting with Donald Trump uh, reportedly uh, about a job as director of national intelligence, which would be a delicious turn of events considering the guy who he'd replace appears to be one of the ones who's out to get him. Um, <clears throat> do you want to talk a little bit, Susan, and I can share some of my own reporting too on kind of what what the, the beef is here with Rogers and what's leading to this really kind of extraordinary uh, public airing of, of complaints about him. So look, um, it is entirely extraordinary, um, and I will confess myself to be um, really incredibly shocked by a, a number of things, um, and I'm still sort of sorting out uh, – uh, what is sort of accurate, you know, sort of hyperbolic reporting? What is what is accurate? But there are there are clearly uh, there are clearly facts that have emerged that um, uh, that have not been disputed um, that that I find sort of shocking on their face. Um, uh, so first, there's sort of this question of um, uh, why did uh, Carter and Clapper uh, write this letter saying that they wanted Rogers to be removed? That's not entirely clear from clear to me from the reporting. It sort of seems to suggest that um, uh, Clapper supported uh, the uh, eventual separation of NSA and Cybercom, um, which would, uh, with a civilian head being appointed at NSA, obviously Rogers wouldn't sort of be, uh, wouldn't be eligible for that. Um, uh, so his sort of view on the issue was um, was not necessarily, it wasn't clear to me that it was personal to Rogers. Um, it, it's, uh, from the reporting, sounds as though um, Ash Carter uh, took issue with um, with Rogers' uh, uh, role in Cyber Command, that he had been um, insufficiently aggressive or, or successful on, uh, on a number of sort of um, uh, on a strategy against ISIS, um, uh, there have been a number of um, of high profile and um, now newly revealed uh, security breaches. Um, of course, uh, uh, Rogers was hired after uh, uh, Snowden um, in part to uh, address some of those issues. Um, uh, so, so it sounds as though uh, Carter had sort of uh, concerns there. Um, and then the third part of the story is sort of this um, uh, deep morale issues uh, within the agency. Um, so look, the, the agency has just gone through um, a major reorganization. Um, uh, I was certainly aware of the fact that people were not happy. Um, uh, I personally had attributed it more to the fact that everybody hates reorganizations. Um, it's not a great time to be at the agency right now, um, you know, just with sort of the level of, of scrutiny and, and sort of discord. Uh, discord. Um, you know, and look, there are uh, there are elements um, of NSA, like any uh, major federal agency, that are sort of dysfunctional that, that have nothing to do with, with Mike Rogers. Um, so uh, sort of putting that in, in one sort of uh, my understanding, um, the thing that is um, utterly shocking to me um, is uh, reporting, which nobody has disputed, um, that Rogers um, went to meet with Donald Trump without conferring with the White House or the Secretary of Defense. Um, that is a rather shocking breach of protocol. Um, it is really for a military officer to meet with the president-elect to discuss a political appointment um, without notifying his superiors, uh, that is a really, really significant thing. Um, so the day before, um, actually rumors had begun that um, the day before this article uh, was released, uh, rumors had come out that Trump was considering Rogers for DNI. Um, I actually had been heartened by that news. Um, 
Uh, I don't know Rogers well, um, uh, but I've certainly seen some of his leadership. Um, uh, my impression of him uh, uh, before, and, and I don't know how much has changed by this reporting, um, has been that he's uh, you know a, a serious person um, who cares quite a bit about uh, seeking legal counsel and taking it seriously. And so sort of in the, the context of where we are with Trump's appointees, um, anyone in the national security space who is um, who's serious and cares about the rule of law and cares about sort of following the rules. Um, uh, I think that's a good thing. Um, uh, Rogers has never struck me as a, a political or partisan type. Um, Until uh, now. <laughs> well, so like I, I will say I, I've seen him um, stand up to both uh, Republican and Democratic members of Congress in, in rather strong ways. Um, and so even now, even with this reporting, um, uh, I just don't believe that uh, Admiral Rogers is like a secret Trump fan. Um, I Maybe I'm totally wrong, um, but that is wildly incongruous with my experience of him. Um, the one piece that sort of doesn't fit in, in sort of my perception of him being, um, if anything, a little bit too keen on the rules, right? You know, come on, sir, couldn't you just let this one go? Um, uh, the breach of protocol of sort of going to see Trump um, uh, is that um, sort of an anomaly, right? Sort of the one thing that's out of order, or is that an indication that um, you know, other judgments were wrong. Um, uh, I think it goes to uh, uh, the way sort of Donald Trump and, and this nomination process and this transition process um, really has started to interfere with some sort of institutional structures. I mean, it really feels like things are, are kind of crumbling in a way that, you know, we have IC infighting on the front page of the Washington Post. You know, uh, somebody who is about to be fired by Obama being considered for the top job at DNI. I mean, this is just, it's unheard of. Um, and sort of, you know, my, my last real concern here is that um, as we saw in the campaign and now that we're, now we're seeing sort of in the transition period, um, the politicization of the intelligence community is a big, big problem. The entire role of the IC is to provide candid, factual, bias-free uh, uh, evidence to the president so that he can make decisions. Um, as soon as we start seeing the IC getting infected by these political sensibilities, uh, then I think we're in for, for some real problems in terms of just the quality of material they produce. So I, I think that's a really important point to end on because I think that um, the prospect of uh, a, a, a an admiral in uniform, you know, a serving military officer going up to meet with a president-elect of the opposite party uh, about a political appointment is deeply troubling to me. And it's made even more troubling by the context, you know, knowing that his civilian bosses down here in Washington were already, had already decided to can him, basically. You know, he sort of says, well, screw civilian authority. I'm going to go do this because it's good for me. I mean, that's the only way I can read it unless he's a secret Trumpy, which, as you say, just doesn't jive with your understanding of the facts. So I saw the tail end of this drama play out because the day after the Washington Post story appeared, 
Mike Rogers was on the agenda to speak at a conference I was at up in Halifax, Nova Scotia, sponsored by the Canadian Defense Ministry. Now, normally it's a very tame, you know, national security conference, but there's a lobster parade. There, there is a lot of lobster consumption. <laughs> it is Nova Scotia, and boy, that lobster was good. With but emulsions, not emoluments, right? With... And bagpipes. <laughs> yeah. But so the lobster and emolument. No. Sunday morning, you know, the first question is: Is Admiral Rogers going to show up? <clears throat> And the word on the street is, yes, he is. And he's not just there. He's He is outspoken. He's vocal as part of a, a panel on cybersecurity, ostensibly. Okay. And he gets the inevitable question uh, from Josh Rogan of the Washington Post asking about the, the story. Did, you know, why did he go to Trump Tower without informing his superiors? And was it because... Uh, as the Washington Post reported, he was already going to get canned. And um, he was, I would say, he was arrogant, I think is the appropriate word, in his mean in responding to this. First, he didn't even let the reporter finish asking the question before he tried to jump in and respond. His response was, I'm not going to talk about this. And then... He uh, almost as though he couldn't help himself. He said, I'm responsible for my actions, uh, which I read as a sort of, you know, go ahead and fire me if you don't like it. Yo, you know, <laughs> um, a bit of a mic drop. Yeah, a bit of a mic drop. Um, the other thing that was striking about this appearance, which was all on the record and it's up on the web, you can watch the video was uh, the, in a previous panel, Senator McCain had been asked about the uh, Russian hacking and whether it had affected the outcome of the election. And McCain had said, no, I don't think it did. Um, Rogers was then asked uh, the same question. And, um, and he said, I agree with Senator McCain. Now, again, there's a big difference between a senator saying it didn't affect the outcome of an election and... Uh, the head of an intelligence agency and a sitting military officer saying it didn't affect the outcome of an election. And the fact that he was willing to just come out with that. Especially uh, after he just met with the man who might become his boss. Right. I, I thought was really it, it was also interesting. Interesting about that, too. And we'll wrap this up. But, but you know, he had also spoken publicly in recent days uh, uh, at a Wall Street Journal event about how no one should have any illusions about the DNC hack that this was something that was done deliberately to target Hillary Clinton's campaign. Now, he didn't say it was Russia and he didn't say in order to help Donald Trump. But that is, of course, the inference. I mean, it's right plain as day right there saying and he was very emphatic about this saying, have no illusions. This was done to achieve an effect. Uh, so for someone who expressed an opinion about those intentions to then meet with the guy who won and now to say, well, I don't think it made a difference. I mean, I think tomorrow you have raised a great point. I mean, this is really, these are, this is, he's very much out of his lane, it seems to. Well, me. so here's the broader question that it raised for me. We had a discussion earlier in the summer around the time of the conventions about the wisdom of recently retired generals like General Flynn and General Allen coming out so forward in the respective political campaigns on behalf of specific candidates and whether that eroded somehow, uh, you know, the military's traditional neutrality in political affairs. And watching Admiral Rogers, I had to wonder, you know, is this an effect? 
of that? Or is this simply another symptom of a broader politicization, as you were suggesting, Susan? I have a prediction on this, which is he will now, uh, Obama will wait until uh, uh, Trump makes his DNI decision before deciding whether to act on uh, Secretary Carter's recommendation to remove Admiral Rogers, because you don't want what you don't want is a situation where you remove him and then he gets nominated to be DNI, or uh, he gets nominated to DNI, be DNI, and then you remove him. Uh, but if Trump chooses someone else, he will be fired within a few days. Well, look, the other thing that um, is significant here is that letter from Clapper and Carter came before Donald Trump won the election. So uh, leaving the uh, position of NSA director open for Trump's selection um, may have, in the interim period, taken on a different significance. Yeah. All right, let's go to object lessons. We're doing something different this time. We're going to – it's Thanksgiving. We're two days from Thanksgiving as we record this. And we need some light in the world. So we're going to go around our little Thanksgiving table. Everyone's going to say, what you're thankful for. It doesn't have to be national security related. Okay, I'll start. I'll start. Um, I'm thankful for you, Shane. And not only because you're such an awesome host of our show, although you are an awesome host of our show. I'm thankful for the free press and, and specifically in a national security vein. I am thankful that you are out there getting all the awesome leaks that are going to be coming to you over the next four <laughs> weeks, over the next four years. And doing it at the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. This is true. This is so, true. If you have Congratulations, heard, thank you. Shane. Thank and you. I'm so thankful for you. Thanks. I'm thankful for you, too. Now go work your ass off. I'm going to work my ass off. Um, I'll go next. On that note. I'm I'm thankful I'm thankful for Netflix and I'm thankful for Amazon. <laughs> Are you thankful for Man in the High Castle? <laughs> I'm thankful for Man in the High Castle. I am thankful for Hollywood right now and and more even broadly art. Um, I really not just because it has provided some welcome escape during uh, you know a stressful time and including during the campaign, um, but I'm just a big believer in the in in the power of art to move people and I think that this is going to be a time where. Uh, Artists have a, a great moment uh, to reflect things in society, to challenge people's thinking, uh, to maybe change people's minds. And I, and, I, and I do think that artists will do more listening and will try and more broadly reflect society and not just even within the bubbles that we all seem to be locked in. Um, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to seeing what a Trump administration does to <laughs> to sort of the creative community. And I don't mean that from a sense of like defiance or opposition, but – you know, I'm a big fan of Battlestar Galactica, which I thought sort of like took on these great issues of torture and detention and did it in this incredibly smart and even empathetic kind of way. In space. Yeah, in space, which was awesome. It's it's great. But I'm really I'm, I'm thankful for the distraction, but also very hopeful about what creative people will be able to do to help shape our understanding uh, of the country we're living in. So I will go next. Um, my national security Thanksgiving is um, I am grateful for the civil service. Um, uh, I think about my former colleagues at NSA who have had just a hell of a week, Van, um, and all the people who are, uh, you know, not just in the national security community, but around the government who are wondering um, uh, what's going to happen to their jobs, what's going to happen to their agency, um, uh, what is uh, the president going to tell the nation about the role that they play. Um, 
Uh, they do incredible work. Um, they provide services to, to the American people. Um, they keep us safe. And uh, for those of you who uh, are listening and decide to, to sort of hang in there for the next four years, um, I am uh, incredibly grateful for, for that choice because um, I really do think we need uh, good people out there um, doing the best they can. So here, thank here. you. I am thankful for scotch. <laughs> and, and I am thankful. And and we noticed the bottle is closer to you than it is to the rest of us. <laughs> it's my emoluments, man. <laughs> and I am thankful uh, for the pro bono services of law firms. And I think over the next four years, uh, I hope we will see a lot of major law firms uh, step forward and make uh, very significant uh, contributions to the rule of law in the form of uh, donations of legal services to organizations that are going to need it uh, and people who are going to need it. Uh, and, you know, we often think of lawyers in big firms as uh, people who are cashing in, and some of them are, uh, but uh, those firms uh, cumulatively make uh, literally hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of uh, pro bono commitments every year. And I think uh, I, am, I am thankful for that and uh, look forward to uh, those commitments being put to good use. Let's hear it for charitable deductions. That's right. That's right. Uh, and I'll just say I'm thankful for this podcast. And for Aww. you, listeners, and we're for you very guys, thankful of course. For well, you. we are. Yes, it goes without and saying. And for we, our we audio engineer and editor, Quinta and Jen. That's right. Who are here every week? Quinta, right here in the studio, and Jen, remotely in an undisclosed location. Let's get them out. some emoluments. Let's emolumate them. We should totally <laughs> emolumate you guys. We'll definitely do that. Okay. Uh, we'll have that. Maybe by next podcast, we'll share our emoluments. Well, I mean, no, don't get too excited. Mm, it I might be get scotch. a little kinky. <laughs> All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Please remember, whenever you download the podcast from Stitcher or iTunes or your favorite podcatcher, to leave us a rating and a review. It really helps everyone find it out so they, too, can be thankful for Rational Security, and we can be thankful for them. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. You've already heard from our audio engineers and our editor-producer. The music was performed this week by Trump and the Emolution. Hmm. No, that's not my best. It's, it's just hard to articulate. Emolution. Emolution. And the emotion, emolution, lotion, emotion. I hate this word now. I really hate this word. I'm not going to use it anymore. I'm going back to emulsions, and that's it. Now, of course, our music the emulsions clause. We need one of those too. Uh, of course, our music is performed as always by Sophia Yan, and we're wishing her a happy Thanksgiving. And on behalf of my friends Tamara Kaufman, Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris, wishing you and yours a happy Thanksgiving as well. And we'll talk to you next week. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.